Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Today we are going to be wrapping up our series uh, called Together. And this is kind of the, the capstone. And uh, we've been talking about what does it mean to be under the, the watchful care of the eldership who are going to be uh, encouraging you to be on mission together as a family in a covenantal uh, with covenantal commitments to one another and to God. And so today we're going to be wrapping up what does it mean to be in Christ following Him together as disciples. And this, this section of um, is going to be, I am, I'm just going to be honest, it's kind of my... I pray that it will cut to your heart. And help us to discern what does it really mean to cherish Christ. Not just to show up at church and be a part of a a worshiping community, but what does it really mean to follow after Christ, to cherish Him in such a way that we are disciples who disciple other disciples. And when we share the Gospel, that we are presenting Christ properly. So here are the words of Jesus Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 25, going to verse 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's, that's right there enough to preach, right? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me uh, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet far, yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who cannot renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. So obviously this is one of the more difficult passages of Scripture, right? It kind of, you're sitting there, maybe you're sitting next to a person that you love, whether it be a, a dear friend in Christ, your wife, or your children, and you're hearing Jesus say these words, and you're going, are you serious? Are you serious? What, maybe, uh, maybe you should consider it this way. What if, having become a Christian, um, you, know, and you want to become a Christian, and, you, and it's a beautiful picture, you, you receive undeserved grace and forgiveness of sins, and that's a great thing, and you hear about that, and you say, man, I want to be a Christian. And so you go through the whole membership class here at Missio Day Church and, and you go, man, that, that was great. I, I'm on board for that. And you finally get to the end and you, you say, all right, I'm all in, Paul. 
Now what do I do? And I sit down with you in my office and I said, well, that's great. I'm really, I'm really excited about you wanting to become a member of the church and you become a follower of Christ. Now, all you have to do is this. I, I want you to go home. I want you to put everything that you own on Craigslist and sell it. And I want you to give all that money to the poor and to the homeless in the city. And I want you to just leave enough for yourself to get maybe a small studio apartment in a rundown part of Joliet, New Lenox, Frankfurt, Mokina, Bourbonnet, wherever you might live, and, and just love on people. Welcome to the family. That's all you have to do. Give up everything that you own. How would the conversation go? How about I say it to you this morning? To follow after Christ this morning, I want you to renounce everything that you love. Is there anything in your heart you're going, but what about this? What about her? What about him? What about this job? What about my bank account? What about this? Do I have to give up that as well? Well, this is exactly what Jesus told someone who was interested in following after him. He, most of you know the story. It's a powerful story of a rich and righteous young man who comes to Jesus and says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to follow you? And after a while, they go back and forth, and Jesus finally says to this rich young man, you one thing. You, you've done all these other things, you, but you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow after me. Mark 10, 21. Now you might say, no, Paul, that's not fair. That, that's not what this passage means that we must sell everything and, and follow after Jesus. Well, perhaps. But certainly it does not mean less than that for the rich young ruler did it what if you were in his place here's a reality we are called to share the gospel the good news of jesus christ to those around us and we are call them to him come follow jesus follow me as i am following him come follow jesus but what are we calling these people to what are, we, what are we to say that following after Jesus really means? Are we giving people a true picture of what that means? Or do we tone it down to make it less threatening and far more appealing? You see, Christianity has been around for about 2,000 years, and yet in some ways it has been grossly misunderstood now more than it ever has been. Here are some common misconceptions. And you might hear this. I'm a Christian because I was born in a Christian family or I was baptized in the church. Or maybe you, you've heard, I'm a Christian because I keep all the Ten Commandments as best as I can. I go to Mass. I go to church. And, and listen, I haven't murdered anybody. Right? Yeah, good for you. Well, I, I'm a Christian because I believe that there was a prophet, Jesus, that taught everyone to love everyone and to be peaceful, and I tried to do that. Or, or maybe I'm not a Christian, but I'm surely okay with God. Or I'm a Christian because at some point I prayed a prayer asking Jesus to come into my heart. Well, 
Is it surprising that I say that these are misconceptions? Because some of you might be going, well, that's, a, that's my story. I, I prayed a prayer and I, maybe I even walked down an aisle at some point. But aspects of these statements might be true. They might be absolutely true of what it means to follow Jesus, but they are not what constitutes a Christian. This morning, by God's grace, I hope that we will clear up these misconceptions and see what it really means for us as fellow believers in Jesus Christ to follow after Jesus together in mission. Because I think it is critical that we understand what it means to be a Christ follower. So here it is. Following Jesus or being a Christian means hating everything else but Him. Too strong? Well, I want you to get the initial force of this passage. These are the words that Jesus uses, right? But what He means is this. If we want to follow Jesus, if we want to follow Him, we will cherish Him over anything or anyone else in our lives. We will cherish Jesus above anything else that this world may offer. It means complete surrender, complete allegiance, half-hearted devotion is not an option. There's no such thing as asking Jesus as Jesus asking too much of you. There's no such thing of Jesus asking too much of you. With Jesus, it is all or nothing. Anything less is not Christianity. Now, you might not claim to be a Christian, especially after a description like that. You might not even care to be a Christian after a description like that. But first, you must at least care a little bit because you have come here to a, a gospel-preaching Christian church. But secondly, I want to encourage you, don't tune out. Even if you deeply, sincerely believe that you are a Christ follower, do not tune out. Because this message is for you. And we're going to see pretty soon, neutrality is not an option at all. You either accept this or reject this. And if you reject this, at least know what you're rejecting, why you're rejecting, and what you might be signing up for. So God's truth this morning is that if we want to follow Jesus, He will be the most important in our lives. We will cherish Him above all else. We're going to hear first that we will cherish Christ more than human relations. Any human relations. Secondly, we're going to hear that we will cherish Christ more than comfort and our life itself. Third, we're going to cherish Christ more than everything that we have. And lastly, we're going to finally, we're going to close by looking at how we can do this by faith. Because some of you are already going, man, this feels awfully legalistic and I, there's no way that I can accomplish this at all. And you're right. So how do we accomplish this by faith? So here's the context. Counting the cost. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus said that great crowds were now following Him. They accompanied Him. And so He turned around to them and said some things. 
Verse 25 tells us at this point in his ministry, many people were following after Jesus Christ. Jesus is going around healing. He's performing miracles. He's casting out demons. He's multiplying bread. He's raising people from the dead. He's preaching about God's kingdom. And so he has gathered quite an external following of people at this time. And it must have looked like a pretty exciting movement and ministry going on. People following and raising up dust as they're walking and talk about town. Have you heard about Jesus? Yeshua. He, he is saved. He raised this man from the dead. He's cast out demons. This is an amazing thing. So there were many onlookers, but few were actually committed disciples. Knowing this, Jesus decided that he was going to make it clear of what it meant to truly follow after him. He doesn't want to trick anybody into being his disciple, so he spells it out exactly what it should look like, what it entails, and he uses two illustrations to get the point across. Look at verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. He is in a way saying here, before you decide to follow me, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into and count the cost. Count the cost. Just like any great endeavor, if any of you have ever been in the process of building a house, you just don't say, hey, I I love that house. Let's go build it. It's a really cool mansion. This would really be great for our family. What do you have to do? You have got to count the cost. What does it mean financially, emotionally? What is going to be the timeline that this is going to all take place? You count the cost. You just don't rush into it blindly. You would sit down and decide if you will commit to following through and finishing what you start. In the same way, if you are going to follow Jesus Christ in mission, giving your total self to Him, make sure that you are determined that you will do it all the way. Are you willing to pay the cost of following Jesus? If not, be honest about it. What you don't want to do is lie to yourself and lie to everyone else. Jesus wants to lay out the cost from the very beginning. It will cost you no less than everything. It will cost you no less than everything. Think about what that means for Christians when sharing the Gospel. We are often so concerned with making the gospel as appealing as we can, right? Just believe in Jesus and you're going to have your, your best life now. You know, Jesus will come and He'll forgive your sins and all that will be taken away and you'll have a new life in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? He, he'll be your friend. He'll be your Savior. He'll be this. He'll be that. And you'll have this great family of people. Follow after Jesus. That's amazing. And we do that because we are trying not to offend people and we want to appeal to them. But are we giving people a clear picture of what Christianity really is? Jesus doesn't seem too concerned to 
making things uh, appealing here, does he? He just tells it like it is. If people sign up for following after me, he doesn't want them to go to him afterwards and go, hold on, Jesus, wait a second. You mean I'm supposed to obey Christ and obey you in all of my life? Nobody told me that. I thought I was just to accept your forgiveness and live my life the way that I want to follow you. I thought that Jesus had to just, you just had to be a part of my life, not my everything. And think about the effects of this approach. Jesus' ministry really uh, wasn't really successful from our vantage point, from our American point of view. He labored for three years. And after all of the thousands and thousands of people that would give Him lip service, what did Jesus ultimately have to show for it at the end? In the end, there were only about 500 true disciples when He ascended. Think about it. The God of the universe became man and only had 500 disciples. His ministry was definitely larger than Missio Dei Church. But it was definitely smaller than a Willow Creek or Harvest Bible Chapel or Parkview. And He was God in the flesh. Jesus warned, though, that this would happen. He said in Matthew 7, 13-14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So if you are going to share the Gospel with ten people, you should not ever be surprised that nine are going to just reject it. Or if you even share the Gospel with a hundred people, you should not be surprised that 99 reject it. That's just the truth of it. It happened to Jesus. The true Gospel is costly. And it's offensive. Scripture says so. It means a complete life change. A wholehearted surrender to Jesus. It doesn't come easy. So watch yourself. If you find yourself toning down the good news and reality of the gospel. But if you're thinking, okay, if, if the, cost, the, the tower is so costly to build, well, forget that. I, I don't want to pay the price. Thank you for telling me the cost. I don't want to just give my life to Jesus without really living it. Well, that's not an option either because Jesus made a second illustration about two kings going at war. One with 10,000 warriors and 20,000. Honestly, you'd be a fool. You are outnumbered twice as many. The first illustration does not leave the impression that neutrality is an option. And the second one definitely does not leave neutrality as an option. The king is coming for you. You only have 10,000 soldiers. You can't possibly win if you rebel. And you can't stay neutral either. The king is coming. He has the rightful claim over you. You only have two options. You can, be, you can resist his rule and be destroyed. Or you can make peace with him on his terms. But the one thing you can't do is pretend that the king is not coming. He is. That is why Jesus make, 
can make these demanding claims of us. If you are asking, who is He that can demand these things of my life? It's my life. How can He demand these things of me? We need to understand that He is the King of kings to whom belongs all of reality. The last thing He said to His disciples as He was commissioning them them out is that He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go. In the name of the Father, and the, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, I'm the King. Go tell people to obey Me. But, uh, that's kind of a different evangelism kind of approach, isn't it? Hey, God's, God's commanding you to obey Him. Will you obey Him? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about Him in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through Him and for Him. And before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things. And then in Philippians chapter 2, therefore God has exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Every name. So at the name, even the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is He that can command your life? He's the Lord of all. He's the King that is coming. And should we not warn people, the King is coming, but there's good news. He has provided a way. Come and make peace with this King. Jesus is the One through whom and for whom everything was created. You breathe because Jesus of Jesus and for Jesus. That is what you were created for. And that is what will bring you the most fulfillment in your life. He is the righteous, gracious, loving, and just King. Whether you acknowledge Him or not, every knee will bow. Every knee. You either do it now willingly or later in defeat. But you will do it. So it's not a matter of, do I want to give myself over to Christ? It's, it's my life and I can choose to give it or not, right? No, you are already His. He has made you. The question is, are you going to recognize it and surrender to His loving rule? Or are you going to rebel to your demise? Contrary to... Uh, popular presentation. Christianity is not just optionally accepting the gift of Christ's forgiveness for a slightly better life. But one that you could do without. No, it is surrendering to His kingship because that is the only option for life that you have. The alternate is not a slightly impoverished life. It is eternal death. 
So, now that we've established that, what does Christ the King look like? What is the cost? It looks like cherishing Him more than anything else in life. Cherishing Him above all other relationships. So the first is, we need to cherish as disciples. Cherish Christ over all relationships. Verse 26 says, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. What are you going to do with that? We've all been born into relationships, right? We've been born into family. At birth, you are born into a family, into the, this structure of people who are going to nurture and, or should nurture and care for you. And Jesus is saying here, you got to hate them. Husband, wife, children, brother, sister, mom, dad, you name it. Oh, wait, did I cover everything? Oh, and your own life. Did I cover everything? Yeah. Every relationship possible. So if you want to follow Jesus, hate everyone. Is, is that what He's really saying here? Hardly. Just several chapters before in Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells His disciples, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And then one of the Ten Commandments is, is that of honoring your parents. In John chapter 13, he says, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, people are going to know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So there, Jesus defined relationship, discipleship as love. And he also put, says it is hate. What is Jesus trying to say? What He is doing here is using a hyperbole. He is using language that almost overstates something to make a shocking statement that is a clear exaggeration to drive a point home. In a parallel version of Matthew chapter 10, He says, whoever loves his father or mother more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is what he means here. The word hate carries a, a comparative nuance. Our love for Jesus should be, hear this, our love for Jesus should be so great and overpowering that by comparison, our love for anyone else should look like hate. My love for Christ should be so great and so overwhelming and so passionate that compared to any other relationship, it looks like we almost hate these people. So what does it look like? Well, at face value, it means that if your father or mother, wife or children or brothers or sisters tells you something that is contrary to what Christ tells you, Jesus' Word always, always, always takes precedence. Always. If your family and friends are not Christian and they want you to compromise your faith and your beliefs and your passion for Christ as a means of honoring them, how many of you have that? Well, don't you love us? Don't you want to be with us? I, I do. But my first allegiance is to Jesus Christ. 
What do we do? We listen to God. So let's look at an application that's not so obvious and is more close to home. What does it mean that you cherish Jesus more than your spouse, for instance? Maybe it means not placing expectations on your wife that should only be placed on God. Maybe it means not expecting your wife to fulfill your loneliness and make you happy. She can't. Jesus can. Maybe it means not being devastated when your husband is disappointed in you or disappoints you. What ultimately matters is that Jesus thinks of you and He loves you so much more that He even endured the cross for you. Maybe it means not giving into anger or despair when your husband sins against you or your wife sins against you. Jesus has cleansed them and clothed them with His purity. It is looking at your spouse in the light of what Jesus says about them rather than in the light of how you feel. But let's look at something even more subtle. If Jesus is the rightful King and the Creator of all things, including relationships, that means He decides what is a healthy relationship. And He doesn't do it arbitrarily, by the way. He wants the best for us. Relationships are not off-limits in Christ's domain. What we do and with whom we do it is just as much a matter of worshiping the King as going to church on Sunday. In other words, the standard for whether or not I should relate with someone in a certain way that is that I want is not, it, it feels right to me or it, it has a positive effect to me. That doesn't necessarily make it right. It feels good to me. Well, I could tell you 101 different things that are sinful that feel good, but does that make it right? No. The standard definitely is not whether or not our culture approves of something. The standard is what is God's design? We must ask questions like, what is God's design for sexuality? What is God's design for marriage? What is God's design for our family roles? What is God's design for raising children? What is God's design for friendship? What is God's design for how we even treat our enemies? When you become a Christian, there is no more of this. No more, you can't tell me what to do. Becoming a Christian means saying to God in community, please, tell me what to do. And help me to do it. Save me from thinking that I know what is best and that the God of the universe doesn't know. Save me from that kind of thinking. Count the cost. Anything less is not Christianity. Following Jesus means cherishing Him over every relationship. Secondly, it means this. Cherish Christ over comfort and life. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you would have known the the weightiness of that very statement, it would change your whole world. It's like anybody who is, you know, 
the cross is a, a symbol of a curse. It is the, the highest criminal in, in the world in that Roman period of time. Anyone who doesn't, it's, you know, it, it's easy to kind of, you know, have a tattoo with a cross and put Jesus' name on it, you know. The cross is my anchor. Ah, it's kind of neat. That's kind of cool. That's, that's kind of sexy. But you know, in that time, it's like, are you serious? You're putting a cross on your body? That's a shame. We don't hardly even want to speak. It, it's a cursed abomination for the Jewish people. It's most of the, one of the most shameful ways to display wretchedness. The cross was meant to display pain, rejection, humiliation, loneliness, and ultimately it was an excruciating death. And this was no small statement. By saying that we must carry our cross in order to be disciples, Jesus is saying, be ready. Be ready to be treated like the worst criminals for my sake. This is how I was treated for you. He's saying you must be, he must be more important to us than even our own comfort, our own security, our own honor, our own well-being, even our own lives. The tense, uh, the verb tense in, with these wor- words carry a continuance, continuation nuance. It's an ongoing thing. It's not just a, all right, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm carrying my cross at that point. I got baptized. I believed in Him. I professed the name of Jesus. All right, I'm done. No, it's a continual thing all throughout your life. This is not a one-time thing, but a lifetime pro- uh, process. Many times, the worst persecution for us as Americans as Americans, is the kind of the, what? Really? You believe that? Kind of the raised eyebrow, and all of a sudden we cower, we freak out. It's like, oh, I'm getting persecuted. Or we might be persecuted because people disagree with us in the workplace. Or they say, you can't talk about Jesus. Keep your religion out of here. Oh, I'm being persecuted. (laughs) That ain't persecution. That is not Let me be clear, Americans. That is not persecution. If the Jewish people heard you talk about that, they go, you are off your rocker. You have no clue. Find some lions. Go to a coliseum. Be covered in tar and pitch and be lit on fire. That is persecution. I don't want to demean the ways in which we suffer for Christ because I know we do, and, and nor am I saying that any of this should make us feel guilty that we're not being persecuted for our faith as others are. But let, you rem- let me remind you of this. If you follow Jesus, you are called to suffer. Listen to what Jesus said before His death in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, strong word, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world and the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, and I cho- but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if, if you're not a believer, you know, the world should love you and things should be really hunky-dory. But since I have chosen you and taken you out and saved you and redeemed you, Be prepared. The world will hate you. So how do we measure success? How how do we know if you are doing a good job? Well, people are going to hate you. 
Do you have friends who are just tired of you being so into Jesus or having such narrow opinions? It may be that you're doing something right. Now, hear this. I'm not telling you that you should be intentionally obnoxious. Some Christians are just plain weird or mean. They're weird because they, they use this strange terminology and everybody goes, what are you talking about? You, you, we can't even relate because you're using weird terms and you're not choosing to condescend and come to me and talk to me like a fellow human being. You're using weird language. And, or there's those Christians who are just plain out mean. Judgmental. Every chance they get to throw a rock, they do. Sometimes you're persecuted because you are just plain weird. It's true. You're just plain weird. You know, you, you have an idea how to relate to people. You, you want to relate to them, but you just don't know how to connect. Maybe Jesus is calling you to work on your personal skills. Maybe it's not persecution or suffering. It's just you. But on the other hand, if all the people who do not love Jesus really like us, on the other hand, if all the people who do not love Jesus like us, and there's, there's never even a rub of confrontation in our conversations, then we have to ask ourselves, how much like Jesus are we really? A disciple is a learner, one who follows, obeys, and grows more and more and more like his or her master. People most people don't like Jesus when they realize what He is really all about. Following Jesus means cherishing Him above all relationships, cherishing Him above our own comfort and even life itself. But look at verse 33 for the last explanation. Being a Christian means cherishing Jesus more than everything we have. Everything that you have. Does that mean your, uh, your latest phone that you stood in line at AT&T to get uh, the coolest uh, iPhone or the latest upgrade for this? Does that mean loving Jesus more than your 401k, your job, your anything else that you may have? Yes. Does it mean that you should sell everything and give it all away to the poor? Maybe. The rich young ruler was asked to do so. But it might not be God's call for you. The point is not that we should sell everything. The point is that if Jesus asked you to, we should sell everything. The point is complete and undivided obedience. So how, how do you renounce all that you have to follow Jesus? Well, He comes first and everything else comes second. Everything is a gift. And no gift is more precious than the gift giver. And maybe an indication could be, how are your children even responding at Christmas time? In the giving of the gift, are they so consumed in the gift? Or are they just responding to the gift giver? Dad, Mom, that was amazing. Thank you so much. I love you. You are amazing. And they'd want to spend time with you because they're responding out of gratitude. I, I love more than that gift. I love you. <laughs> I love you. 
You realize that all that you have is His. You live not as an owner, but as a steward, a manager. And Christ is ultimately the owner. You are the steward of the money that God has entrusted to you. You are the steward of the time that God has given to you. You are the steward of the health and the energy that God has placed within you. You are the steward of the abilities, the gifts, and the talents that God has invested in you. You are a steward of His gifts. Not just that, but you are the steward of all the passions and hopes and dreams that God has put into you. How are you using all of those? Do you go through life spending it all on yourself as if you were the boss? The Paul, Apostle Paul exemplifies this well in Philippians. After describing his list of accomplishments, his ethnic pride, his social status, his religious status, and even his zeal, everything that has defined him, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Don't miss the beauty of what Paul is saying here, friends. He counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. I count everything as loss. I may just gain Christ. It's not just sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. It's sacrifice of a lesser joy for gaining ultimate happiness. Surrendering to Jesus' loving and gracious reign in this way is the highest, most freeing joy a human being can ever have. This is what we were created for by Christ and for Christ. To enjoy Christ forever. Only He can fulfill us. But what is the gain that you count as loss for knowing Christ? Or do you even think that Christ is worth losing anything? What is Christ even calling you maybe this morning to count as rubbish for the sake of gaining Christ and enjoying Him? What are you holding back from doing? Someone once said that the value of something, of something is evidenced by what we are willing to sacrifice for it. Husbands, are you willing to give up your wife to gain Christ? Wives, are you willing to give up your husband to gain Christ? Are we willing to give up a child to gain Christ? Many of us 
say, man, I hope that God never calls me to even serve those people. I, I hope He never calls me to, to singleness. I hope He never calls me to give up this relationship. I hope He never calls me to settle down and invest my life in fill in the blank. I, I hope He never calls me to give up my, the security of my job or the st- my standard of living. I hope He never calls me to have kids or I hope He never calls me to talk to someone else about Him and so on and so forth. Fill in the blanks with whatever fears and worries we have. We all have those fears. And Jesus says in verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce All that He has cannot be My disciple. Now you might be thinking, if you've been around Missio Day long enough, or you've been raised in the Reformed tradition, you might be saying, Paul, but aren't we we a Reformed church? I thought you said that that the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's what really saves us, right? Not not this kind of weird, freaky, over-the-top obedience of loving Jesus more than anything else. Plus, Paul, who can really perfectly obey that? Seriously? Those are high standards. If this is what it means to be a Christian, then there's no Christians in the world. If these are Jesus' standards, show me one. So the last point is, how do we do this? How do we cherish Christ above all? He is the most precious relationship. He is, we, we cherish Him above all other relationships, all other things, and we, even above our own life. How do we cherish Him? We do this by faith. Are we disciples by faith? Or by obedience? Or by love? What is Christianity really all about? And the, the answer is, are we, are we Christians by by faith? Yes. Are we Christians by obedience? Yes. Are we Christians by love? Yes. For Jesus, faith is not necessarily is, is necessarily intertwined with love and results ultimately in obedience. You cannot have one without the other. Don't ever pit faith against obedience. Never. True faith in Jesus Christ leads to obedience. True obedience means faith in action. And it all flows from love. And none of it means, hear me clearly, none of it means perfection. Some of you are going, I am screwed. Some will say that this really sounds like we have to work for our salvation and that there's all kinds of expectations on me now. Well, this is salvation by grace through faith alone. And real faith in the Gospel transforms you. This is the kind of faith that the Reformers even fought for, by the way. Not as for a useless mental faith, with no real life change. True saving faith is evidenced by works of love, by a life of surrender to Christ. Obedience is the fruit of faith in the Gospel. And what is the Gospel? What exactly is this? That we can't do this on our own. 
We are dead in our trespasses. We are dead. There is no heartbeat for God whatsoever. But we trust in Christ who does it all. He has accomplished it for you. And He is going to work within you. And every day as we trust more firmly on Him, every day more and more, we are going to be able to put to death the sin in our life and come alive more in Christ. And He did this all for those who respond in faith and love. None of us have the resources within us to finish the tower. None of you. None of you can totally count the cost. But now, if we surrender to Him by faith, we are united with Christ in His love, in His cross, His sacrifice, His obedience has now been given to us. He got our failure. We got His perfect obedience. Woohoo! That is good news. And His Holy Spirit starts transforming us to look more and more like our Master. Moreover, none of this happens because of us. We have seen this repeatedly that even faith itself is a gift from God. And the obedience and love that flow from it are God's gifts. He is the one who changes our hearts to trust in Jesus by the Holy Spirit so we get no credit for any of it. This is what believing the Gospel of Jesus produces. And this is not salvation by works. So hear me, friends. None of you can obey perfectly. And some of you are freaking out still. But at the same time, it's not an excuse that you cannot obey perfectly. Perfection is not what Christianity is, but discipleship does mean a changed life. A changed life direction. A changed way that we look at the world as we are following our Master. It means a life of mistake-making. Some of us are pros at that. It's a life of mistake-making, of learning and growing, all of which happen in the context of submission to our King. So the application of this is not, oh dang, I, I must not be a Christian because I, I can see that my life, that I'm not giving up things, that I'm not loving my, uh, my Savior more than my husband or my wife or my kids. I see areas that I don't love Jesus most. The reality is welcome to the club. Welcome to the family. The application is that as a Christian, you signed up to fight against those very things. Together. With fellow believers. Together we fight that. We fight for loving together Jesus the most. We fight for renouncing everything for Him. And we do that together. So we ask God to continually change our hearts, to reveal to us ways that we are unwilling to change. And, and grant us, God, grant me repentance. Help me to turn from that and run to You. Help me to grieve and mourn and have hatred for my sin and run to Your arms of mercy. God, help me do that. 
And when we fail, we rest in the promise that there is no condemnation left for those who submit, to their, submit their lives to Christ by faith. Because He has paid for our failure. Your failure is, is paid for. That is, Jesus took His cross for us. So let me close with this thought. When you cherish Jesus above all else, He becomes the core reason and purpose for everything. He becomes the central foundation upon which everything else is is grounded and to which everything else relates. And when this happens, everything else will fall in its right place. For instance, loving Jesus more will than your wife does not make you love your wife less, but it actually helps you love her better in the right way. Because when you cherish Jesus Christ, he will, you will want to live out the commandments of loving your wife sacrificially just as Christ loved His church sacrificially from Ephesians 5. Loving Jesus more than your life doesn't mean that you hate your life. On the contrary, you enjoy your life more. And you can say with the joy-filled psalmist in Psalm 63, because of your steadfast love, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your life was meant to be lived with and for Jesus. That is true life. Loving Jesus more than all you have won't make you disdain what you have. It will actually help you appreciate and with a thankful heart use all that God has given you in its proper place. Everything from your time, your energy, your talents, and your resources. If God has blessed you with a beautiful home, you won't hate your home. You will now view your home in its proper perspective and use it for the glory of God. If God has given you financial resources, you're not going to hate your resources, but you are going to thank God for your resources and so use it to glorify Him and further His kingdom. It gives us proper perspective. So let's commit together. Let's commit together to pursue Christ above all else. And this is true freedom. This is true joy. And this is what Christianity means. And nothing less. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, help us to pursue You fully with our entire life with every relationship that we have, with all the energies and gifts and everything that You have given us, help us to pursue You more and more and more fully. So that ultimately, Christ is exalted and glorified and 
people will see You above all other things. Help us as a local church, Missio Day Church, this morning to accomplish that with obedience, out of gratitude, and by faith. And Lord, we trust You to even bless Your humble servants in that process. And may our lips praise You because of Your loving kindness. We so pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.